that past song was your particular cup of tea as far as music is concerned. It is very much the way the people who wrote the Psalms would have expressed themselves in worship and praise to the Lord. Would have sounded differently, more of a minor key, but it would have been the same amount of passion and concern expressed to the Lord, love and praise expressed to the Lord, even frustration with the God. Why, 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 Lord, did you wait so long? And in this particular song, the psalmist was saying, my soul must wait on the Lord. He'll come through, but I have to wait on Him. It's going to be a great summer in the Psalms. We're just not going to start this morning. It's ironic, uh, David and I met early in the week, and I was saying, you know, just really want to have a little bit better understanding, an idea of where uh, we're going a little bit further ahead and uh, then uh, the Lord just completely changed directions late in the week for me or helped me to cause me to change directions. Our, our staff and many of our, uh, some of our elders, most of our staff, some of our elders went to a church conference this week in Durham. Uh, John Piper and Mark Driscoll, and Matt Chandler, J.D. Greer, a couple of others were speaking there. And, and uh, we were there all uh, day Friday, half the day Thursday, all day Friday, half the day Saturday. And uh, during that time, we heard powerful preaching and admonition to repent of sin, and to love Jesus, and to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And even though I had planned to begin with Psalm 1 this morning, it became quite clear on by Thursday night that I just wasn't going to be able to do that. I, I was especially moved. Convicted would be more accurate. Uh, for the need for repentance of sin in my own life. And I felt very much like KJ said Friday afternoon after the message that the Lord spoke to us through Mark Driscoll uh, about repentance of sin from idolatry. And remember, he was preaching to church leaders, church staff, church elders. I felt like KJ, I'm undone. I mean, I just absolutely am undone. This morning, we will come as we do the first Sunday of every month, to the Lord's table. And when we come to that time, we're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians 11 to the instruction given to us in 1 Corinthians 11 about how we should conduct ourselves in communion. Now, you will recall that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul told these good folks at, at Corinth who belong to the church there that they need to examine themselves before they come to the table, lest they be eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. If they come to the table unworthily, then Paul said, you will eat and drink judgment to yourself. Some of you, he said, are sick and others have even died because of their careless approach to the Lord's table. Now, I, I, the way that's been emphasized through the years has caused me to almost overreact and say, look, look, don't... Don't spend so much time worrying about that. This is indeed the, the indication of God's forgiveness to us. But, but it's there. It's true. Paul said, some of you are sick and some have already died because of your abuses of the Lord's Supper. There were two particular abuses. One, they made a mockery uh, of the Lord's Supper. They were getting drunk. Certainly none of that going on here be tough to get drunk on grape juice, but they were, which lets you know what they were drinking. It wasn't juice. And they were also withholding food, bread and food, 
from the poor because they considered the fact that they were in poverty, that their, their poverty was an indication of God's judgment upon their lives. They had this idea that if God is blessing you, you'll be rich and you'll have everything you need. Still think that today, don't we? If you're poor, God must be judging you. If you're wealthy, God must have blessed you. And, and even though, certainly there's not that spirit, I don't sense that spirit from anybody in here. We, we understand that God blesses us according to His choice for us and for His glory and for our place in the kingdom. And He gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And He just chooses and He does that according to His perfect will and good pleasure. And even though none of that is going on here this morning, there's, there's plenty of application for us as we come to this table. What does it mean for one to repent of his or her sins? That's the focus of the message today. Repentance, true repentance leads to, to real joy. For those of you who don't know Christ, it means to see yourself as the kind of sinner that God sees you are. Not, not the kind of sinner that, that says, well, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've certainly made some big mistakes in my life. Nobody's perfect, but hey, I'll acknowledge. No, it's not like that. It's, it, it's a, it's the kind of recognition that says, I am a sinner and I have offended a holy and a righteous God. In fact, I accept that it's true what he says about me, that in my sin I am his enemy. I am totally toward me, opposed to him. It's to acknowledge your sin and confess it at that level. But then repentance, let me say this before I step to the next, uh, go to the next point. You need to be careful to understand that repentance doesn't mean you quit doing bad things and start doing good things so that God will love you. That's not the point. We will never, true repentance acknowledges our sin in such a way that says, I will never be good enough to please God in my own strength. But I recognize that this sin is a horror before a holy and a righteous God. You ever been saying something about someone and all of a sudden you turn around and there they are? How do you feel when you're busted like that? Or you're in the middle of something. When I was a teenager... I was smoking a cigarette and I turned around and there was my father. Busted! That was not a good feeling. To, to repent of your sin means to recognize you just stand there naked and exposed before God. Wicked before God. It's seeing your sin in that way. But you can't stop there. You then turn to the cross where we remember today where Jesus was the perfect substitute for our sins and say, I believe my only hope of heaven is what He did on the cross in my place. In my place. That's what repentance of sin is. It's a turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. It's not saying, okay, I'm going to do better. I can't tell you how many times I did that as a teenager. I'm going to do better. No, it's, it's seeing it as it is and letting the Lord deal with you. And that's what it means to repent and believe and thus be saved. For Christians, repentance is pretty much the same heart attitude. It involves confessing our sin to God, grieving that we have offended Him who has been so gracious and good to us and who is holy and righteous even if He hadn't been good to us. But it's grieving over what we have done that's offensive to Him. 
Repentance also includes a change of our heart about sin. And a commitment to God's ways. I, I want to do this your way, Lord. But it's also a recognition. I can't do it in my own strength. Just like a, a sinner comes to Christ, we all did. Before we were saved, we came saying, I got nothing. As a believer, you do the same thing. I got nothing. The Spirit of God, now that's something. And He lives inside of me. And He'll give me the power. So it's, it's confessing our sins and then yielding to God to change us. It's not, oh well, everybody does it. I'm, you know, and I'm going to sin till the day I die. That's not a spirit of true repentance. It's a desire for a change in my life. But a recognition that only God can give us the strength to do it. We'll never accomplish what we want or, or please God living in the strength of our own flesh. So this morning we're going to ta- spend some time reading about repentance. Then we're going to take time to confess our sins and repent before we come to the Lord's table. Now, if you're a visitor here at Grace Community Church and, and Jesus is your Savior, then we invite you to participate with us at this table. If you were here this morning and you've never done that, in fact, you, this is kind of like, whoa, always figured that, that you do the best you can and if your good works out well, your bad works, then that's how you get in. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never confessed before God, you, you're a sinner and, 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 and put yourself totally at His mercy and thrown yourself on what Jesus did for you, then do that. You can do it before we even read our Scripture in just a moment. You can do that right now. In your heart, you can do that. And become a child of God. You will be born again. God will save you. If you'll do that in your heart, do that. And then join us at this table in communion this morning. I spent significant time yesterday afternoon on the floor, on my face before God, repenting of my sin. And believe me, as I say that, it brings temptation to more sin, the sin of false humility and and self-righteousness. I I recognize that. I just want you to know that I'm not going to ask you to do something this morning that I've not done myself. And it's rather a hard thing that we're going to do this morning, but an incredible, incredible end. The book of Acts tells us that repentance is a gift that God has granted to us. And oh, what a cleansing, wonderful gift it is. Our text this morning is Second Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 12. After we read it, I'm going to give just a bit of the background so it makes sense. Then we're going to look at the text for a few minutes and then spend some time preparing our hearts for the Lord's table. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 12. Would you please stand as we read God's Word together? Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. 
For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that this letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves with indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to fully grasp what you're saying here in this text, and that you say in other places in your word, we'll not look at them. And, 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 and then, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take these words and burn them deep into our hearts and bring us back to you, even those of us who don't know at this moment that we've gone anywhere. We yield ourselves to you and ask you to do your work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. If you just read these verses without knowing the context, you might infer that Paul's happiness depends on whether or not the people at Corinth like him, whether they get along with him, whether they agree with him. In fact, there's just a lot about the issues that were involved in this text that I'm not going to be able to take time to explain this morning. Uh, that was not the case at all, though. His concern certainly... In deal, uh, uh, in, involved his thoughts about the Corinthians and whether they agreed with him or not, but it was really to do with the gospel. It had to do with the gospel. If you recall, back at the first of the year, we were in Second Corinthians 12, we talked about this. Paul's apostleship was very important, not because he was the big man on, in the kingdom, big man on campus, but because the very gospel itself was at stake. He had opponents, people who were constantly saying, look, Paul's preaching a bunch of junk. You don't want to listen to that. It's going to get you in trouble. You've got to do good things in order to please God. And, and don't, this grace thing will lead you in the wrong direction. Paul so consequently felt compelled to defend his position in the place that God had given him. And so a lot of times in, in, his letters, especially in the book of Second Corinthians, it feels like he's being defensive. He is to some degree, but it's a defense of the gospel. And it, and, and it may come across one way to us, but it wasn't his heart at all to say, look, you better listen to me. If you want to know what's right, you better listen to me. He was saying, you better listen to God. And these people who were imputing me and and, and trying to attack the message that I have given or attacking the very truth of God. And it's crucial that you believe the gospel. That was his desire. God had commissioned him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and, and Satan had gotten in there and was all going astray and it, it grieved Paul. It concerned him deeply. 
Well, Paul shared the same gospel that Peter, John, and the other apostles shared. That only through repentance of sins and belief in Jesus could one be saved. So remember that as you read this text and also all of uh, his letters, but especially the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've ever read uh, Paul's letter to this church, the first letter that he wrote, known as, appropriately as, 1 Corinthians, then you know that he was quite harsh as he dealt with the problems there at Corinth. There were divisions in the church. They were following. They were... They were uh, uh, aligning themselves with certain preachers in the in the city, and they were saying, "I follow this guy. I follow this guy." Some were so spiritual they said, "I follow Christ." And Paul said, "Don't let's don't have anything to do with that." And he talked to him about litigation in public when things should be handled in the church, and and about sexual sins, horrible sexual sins, and 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 the misuse of the Lord's Supper. Or, ways that they acted at the Lord's Supper and the misuse of spiritual gifts. And there were just problems on and on and on. The list goes. And after Paul sent the letter, you can imagine that in addition to his concern over the Corinthians' tendency to trust works rather than God's grace. And by the way, this was outward works, certainly not some from, from the heart, as their actions indicated. But they had convinced themselves if you lived a particular way, then you'd get to heaven. He was worried about how they would respond to his spiritual rebuke. So here's what he did. He sent Titus, Titus into Corinth. And he said, Titus, let's meet up in Macedonia, most likely Philippi. And you'll recall there was trouble when he went to Philippi. Not only that, Titus didn't show. He didn't come at the allotted time. And so Paul was saying, oh my goodness, what's going on? Well, finally... When Titus arrived, Paul was overwhelmed with joy. First of all, that Titus was alive. I mean, it was that serious. He was concerned he may not make it out of there. If he goes in and says, hey, what you guys think of Paul's letter? They might say, well, let me tell you what we thought about Paul's letter. You know, so he was glad to see, see Titus, but then he was particularly happy to see that their response had been a godly response to what he had said. We talk about how awful the Corinthian church was. Man, these guys repented. Paul told them straight, and they repented. They still had problems, and he dealt with some of those in this second letter, which was probably actually the third letter. Titus probably took him another one. But we, the one we know is 2 Corinthians. He still had some issues, but they repented. They responded rightly. So you can imagine, Paul was overjoyed. And in this letter that he's sending back, that we know as 2 Corinthians, Paul commended them for repenting in the right way. What's that about? Is there a right way and a wrong way to repent? I mean, if you repent, it's all good, right? No, not necessarily. Godly sorrow leads to salvation for the loss and for peace for the Christ follower. Worldly sorrow or worldly grief, a repentance that, that comes from worldly grief, leads to death. So a legitimate concern would be, how do we distinguish between the two? How do you know? When my sin has caused me grief, when I'm terribly upset over something that I've done, how do I know if it's a worldly grief or a godly grief? Well, let's consider both for just a, a few moments. Worldly grief often manifests itself as a sorrow that I've been caught. 
busted like I was that day when I turned around smoking that cigarette and my dad was there. Or about the consequences of that particular sin. Man, I should have been more careful. Now, maybe I might not even say that, but that's really my heart. I should have been more careful so that I wouldn't have been caught. Worldly sorrow causes shame and embarrassment, which can also be true of, of, of a godly grief, but, but it causes shame and embarrassment and more than a little self-pity, and it looks for ways to blame other people for my sin. You know, if it had, hadn't have been for this, if it hadn't been for that, if you hadn't allowed this to happen, then I wouldn't have been in this mess. It's somebody else's problem. It's constantly looking to deflect responsibility. It, it's totally me focus and fails to get at the very root of the problem, which ironically is me. Really, it's a, it's a way not to deal. Well, deal with it to the degree that you're forced to. Really, is what worldly grief is. And since the real problem is not addressed, worldly grief not only fails to affect a real change in me, but it ultimately leads to death because I take God out of the picture while going through the motions of sorrow and confession. So if I'm caught in a sin, is it too late to repent? No! It's never too late to truly repent. My sorrow, my grief over sin must be, however, a godly grief. Godly grief is a grief that recognizes that I've been created and loved by a good and holy God and that my sin is an affront to His righteousness and is thus an offense to Him. You know, we sin mightily against one another, but ultimately all sin is against God. It is first and foremost against God. It's genuine sorrow for offending God. Godly grief will recognize the hurt that my sin has caused others and genuinely, be genuinely sorry for my actions. True, true repentance paves the way for lasting change in the way that I live. I, I got to tell you, at my age, in fact, I was this way a lot younger than, than now, it is so difficult for me not to be cynical about someone else changing, really changing. You know, because you don't see a lot of genuine change in people. True repentance paves the way for the possibility of real change in my life. Lasting change. In verses 11 and 12 of our text, Paul gives several evidences and benefits of genuine repentance. Now, I'm not going to make one-to-one correlation. If we were to take the time to explain everything Paul is saying here, we really wouldn't have time to make application. I, I, I trust that you, I hope that you will trust me enough to know that I'm not doing damage to Scripture. We're going to apply this to our particular sins, not to the situation between Paul and the Corinthians. That's the way Scripture works. I, I prefer to take more time to explain exactly what was happening so that you see that it's not an abuse because it's, it's very easy to do that when making application of Scripture. But we, we do no damage at all to this text by 
applying what Paul says here to our particular sins. The first evidence of true repentance. Now listen, the whole list is up there. Don't spend so much time running down the list that you miss each one. Let's take them one by one. The first evidence of true repentance is an earnestness that results in intentional living. Intentional living. It leads to a life that is not careless, but directed toward God. That produces the second fruit, which is a desire to clear oneself. No longer content to live for myself, but now my desire is to be clear. To live for God and to establish my loyalty to Him. Also, true repentance produces an indignation against sin. It's no longer attractive, but disgusting to such a level that it leads to indignation. The fear of God brings motivation to avoid sin. And again, in our love for grace, we tend to forget that this fear also includes a fear of being judged by God for our Sin or him judging our sin in such a way that will cause significant difficulty and pain for us. There is also a desire, and indeed a longing, to live righteously before God. I mean, let's face it, sin can be attractive, it can be quite appealing. And before you Pat yourself on the back and say, not to me, I hate it. I hate that stuff. It disgusts me what, what they do on television and, 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 and the way people behave and the way they, they act. It could be that you're in love with sin and you don't even know that you're sinning. Say, through self-righteousness. I'm better than everybody else because I don't do this, this. Come on, can't can we get past the list? Well, no, we can't. We, we can't. We, that's who we are. Sometimes we compare ourselves with others who are better than us and we say, oh, I'm so awful. And then we, most of the time, though, we look down our noses at other people and say, well, thank God I'm not like this one. I think Jesus dealt with that. True repentance leads to a longing for God. I skipped one sentence I wanted to say. Sin can be attractive until godly grief shows us just how ugly it is, no matter what the sin is. True repentance leads to a longing for God and for His righteous power in our lives to overcome sin. See the progression. And that's where zeal comes in. A passion to honor God and others with our lives. The passion is so intense that sin in our lives must be judged and punished by us. We deal with it so that God won't have to. We deal with the sin in our lives. That's what repentance does. Not, not from a 
ontological forgiveness. Go home and look that one up. And then when you figure out what it means, tell me, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. But that's what repentance does. It, it, it drives us to deal with sin. All right, I realize the hold that it has on me. And, and with God's strength, this is how I'm going to judge it and deal with it. Now, again, <laughs> none of this happens in our own strength. None of it. No wonder... Repentance is called a gift of God. We can't do it on our own. But what a difference godly sorrow and repentance can make in our lives. It leads to true joy. So we're going to take some time before we come to this table and repent of our sins. Just a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And and we're going to spend some time confessing our sin. I, I can promise you, that true repentance will be a bath for your soul that will cleanse you in a way that you haven't been cleansed in a long time. Now, maybe you, you repented yesterday or this morning of some things that just had, had built up in your lives. And you, came, and you came in here clean this morning. Chances are there are places in our heart that the Holy Spirit would like to put His finger on if we'd just be open. So let's open our hearts and our lives before the Lord. So let's begin just by quieting our hearts. Would you please close your eyes and and bow your head. You don't have to do that, but it's probably helpful if you do. And would you just ask God to give you a heart to repent of sin this morning, true repentance before Him, and ask Him for a godly sorrow. Now, if there is a specific sin that is clearly prohibited in Scripture, uh, dishonesty, sexual sin of some nature, gossip, failure to follow your role in your family or at work or in the church, if there's a specific sin that you know exists, that you, it, it, it was the first thing on your mind when you saw the title of this message, just, just confess it to God with a heart of sorrow for offending Him, not not for for what it does to you or getting caught or consequences or any of that, but just for offending a holy and righteous God. Confess that sin to Him. And this is really, uh, hopefully, just the beginning today. You may need to spend more time doing that at home. But would you confess if there is if this is true in your life, a love for the world that is far greater than your love for God or just idolatry. It could be a love for, it could be good loves and passions. Oh, that was what the message was on Friday afternoon, idolatry that just did us in. Could it be that you need to confess a love for religious activity that brings you greater joy than your love for God? Revelation 2, 1 to 5, the church at, Ephesus, what an incredible church, and yet they were going about their duties, their religious duties without a love for God. They'd lost it. Is that something you need to confess? Well, how about pride, self-righteousness? Jesus condemned this sin more than any other. It is an attempt to please God with my actions rather than 
to receive his grace and power to live as I should. If you think you're not guilty of this sin, let me just ask a few questions. First, do you judge your own sins differently, as in less harshly, than you judge the sins of others? Or maybe you think your sins are not nearly as bad as the other person's sins. So consequently, do you hold others to a higher standard of righteousness than you hold yourself? Do you care more about outward appearances than you do about being right on the inside? Self-righteousness often leads to this. Do you do you despise others? Is there someone you just despise? Especially someone in, in the body of Christ. The epistle of 1 John asks us, if we fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we say that, that the love of God dwells in us? Well, obviously, if there's any other sin that you need to confess, I'm sure you've already begun to deal with it, and and this may go on at home. And So if your heart is in the spirit of repentance, please feel free to come to this table and not worry about judgment from God. That's the whole purpose of the cross. He died for us to forgive us of our sins. One last question I have. Do you need to confess the sin of hoping someone else was really listening? to this message or wishing that someone else had been here. Father, when you expose us, we are exposed indeed. And Lord, you exposed me this week. And I pray that nobody senses that I have exposed them. What difference would that make? God, there's so much And what's been said that just weighs heavy on my heart and conviction to be worried about anyone else. But I I do know, Father, just as we have seen in your word today, that you desire for all of us to have this godly grief that leads to a repentance that brings salvation with no regret. Lord, we are full of regret in our hearts and lives. Cleanse us as we confess our sins. Give us, grant us, Father, as unbeliever and believer alike, the gift of repentance. And knit our hearts together as they are bound more tightly to you as we come this morning to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. The elders would come. We will come to the Lord's table. And I will read from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, and not take time to explain anything, but I think it's already been explained. You understand what Paul was dealing with here. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together to the table, it is not for the better... But for the worse, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing?
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. That's what we've been doing. We've been judging ourselves that we not be judged by the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If it's necessary for Him to deal with us, it's a good thing. So that we'll not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, because of the difficult nature of this, let me return to those verses that give us this wonderful promise of forgiveness. For I see from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. His body was broken for us. Do this in remembrance of me, He said. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's great news. And that's what we want to do. Proclaim his death until he comes back. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us wicked, wretched sinners. We've confessed our sin. And we come to this table in anticipation of meeting with you and of meeting with one another. He would come.